Good evening, and welcome to Dimensions of Prophecy with Kenneth Cox. I'm Brenda Wood. In Pastor Cox's presentation, $5,000 reward for a missing text, he's going to be looking for a scripture text that many people believe is in the Word of God. In fact, there are numerous statements people believe are from scripture, but aren't. For example, have you ever heard this one? God helps those who help themselves. Many believe they can find this much-used text in Scripture, but they can't. It's from Poor Richard's Almanac by Benjamin Franklin. Here's another one. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, that's not from Scripture either. Just an old wives' tale. Tonight's subject concerns a text people believe is in God's Word, much more than those I just mentioned. And a $5,000 reward has been offered if you can find it in the Bible. $5,000 reward for a missing text. Let's join Pastor Cox and find just what he has in store for us this evening. Very happy to welcome each of you back again this evening. A young Russian czar had stepped out of the palace, out into the gardens, just to look over the beauty of the garden and the scenery. And as he was looking at all the flowers and the shrubbery, he happened to look over the garden wall, and out in a vacant field, he saw a soldier standing at attention. And the curiosity of this young czar was raised, and he went out into the field and asked the soldier, what are you doing? What are you looking for here? And the soldier said, well, I'm guarding this spot, sir. And the young Russian czar said, well, what are you looking for? What are you, what are you guarding? The soldier said, I don't know, sir. He said, well, why have you come out here? What are you supposed to be watching for? What are you supposed to be caring for? And the young soldier said, I don't know, sir. And the young czar said, but what are you doing here? What's your purpose for being here? Why have you come out here? The young soldier said, because the command sent me out here, sir. He said, well, what did they tell you to do? He said, they told me to guard this spot. He said, you've been coming out here long? He said, oh, day after day. And so the young czar went to see the command. And he said to them, are you sending this soldier out there? And they said, yes, sir. He said, what do you have him watching for? What's he supposed to be protecting? What's he caring for? They said, we don't know, sir. He said, well, why do you send him out there? And they said, because we have orders to. He said, well, what's he supposed to be looking for? They said, we don't know. And the young czar said, well, let me see the orders. And they went and got the orders, and that young czar began to trace them back, and he traced them back year after year after year, even had to go into the archives and trace them on back, clear back to the days of Catherine the Great. And he found out in the days of Catherine the Great, out in this vacant field, she had planted a very, very beautiful rose garden. She let the people in the community come and walk through the rose garden and look at the beautiful roses. And she had a very, very rare rose. And she didn't want anything to happen to that rose. And so she had gotten orders for a soldier to stand guard and watch that rose. Catherine the Great had died. The rose garden was gone. The rare rose had disappeared. All had passed away, but that order for that soldier to stand guard at that particular spot had never been taken out. 
We find ourselves sometimes doing exactly the same thing. We find ourselves standing guard over something that we don't know where it came from. Oh, it's just been handed down by our parents and our grandparents and on down, and we don't know where it came from, but it's been given to us as a heritage. That's why it's so important when we come to God's Word and we look at the Scripture that we know what the Scripture says, that we're building our faith and our belief on the Word of God. That little poem that I've shared with you night after night that says, what says the Bible? The blessed Bible, this my only question be, the teachings of men so often mislead us. What says the Bible to me? That's what we want to know. That's what we want to find out tonight. You see, even in Christ's day, they were having trouble with people believing things that had been handed down year after year. Jesus spoke about it. He had this to say about it. But he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God because of your, tra your traditions? He said, Why do you? Why do you transgress the commandments by traditions that have been handed down year after year and you don't even know where they came from? And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Oh, it's so important that you and I know exactly what our faith is built upon, why we believe that, where it came from. Now, God hasn't left us in a position where we cannot know what truth is. That we can know. In fact, the Lord has given some ways in which you and I can know exactly what truth is. We don't have to be in doubt. In fact, it has this to say. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. In other words, I can look at the life of Jesus Christ and in the life of Jesus Christ, I can know what truth is. Jesus is the truth. He's the perfect embodiment of truth. And by looking at his life, by looking at what he taught, by looking at the way he lived, I can know truth. It also tells us another way that we can know truth. In John 17 and verse 17, it tells us this. It says, sanctify them by your word, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. In other words, it tells me that when I pick up this book, that in this book I can find truth. Thy word is truth. This is not relative truth. This is absolute truth, and in it I can know what truth is. God also has told us another way that we can know what truth is, and that's by the law, because it says over in Psalms, 119th Psalm says, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth. So in God's law, I can also find truth and know what truth is. Now, I have spent two nights with you on the question of the Sabbath. One night, we just took the Scripture and we traced through the Scripture what it had to say about the Sabbath. Last night, we went and we took a look from Scripture and history and we studied all the way through it and we found out how a change was made. Now, it's most important 
that you and I as human beings be as objective as we possibly can because there are some people. There are some people that without any question of a doubt, they would almost stake their life on it that there is in this book certain text where God blessed, hallowed, and sanctified another day beside the Sabbath. They believe that. And therefore, you and I must be as objective as we possibly can be and see if any such scripture exists. And so we're going to take a look. We're going to take a look at every text in this book that mentions the first day of the week and see if there's a text where it says that God blessed, hallowed, sanctified the first day of the week. Because if there is, there's a $5,000 reward for such a text. So let's go to the book of Genesis. We're going to go right back to the beginning when God created the world, and right there in the first chapter, it says something about the first day of the week. Genesis 1, verse 5, it says, And God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day simply says that right there on the first day, evening in the morning, that he made the first day of the week, and it says the dark part of the day came first and then the light part, but there is nothing in this text whatsoever that says that God blessed, God hallowed, God sanctified the first day of the week. It doesn't say that. In fact, any day of the week could have been the Sabbath except the first day of the week. It's the only one that couldn't have. Any other day could have been, but not the first day of the week because, you see, God could have created the world in five days and rested the sixth. God certainly could have created the world in four days and rested the fifth. He also could have created the world in three days and rested the fourth. God is omnipotent. He could have created the world in two days and rested the third since he spoke the world into existence. He could have created the world in one day and rested the second. But one thing he could not do is create the world in one day and rest all that day. Impossible. So the only day that could not have been, the Sabbath would have been the first day of the week. So this text is not saying that that day was blessed, hallowed, or sanctified by God. But there is something in this verse that's most important that you and I know because it tells us that the day starts when? The dark part of the day comes first. It tells us that the day starts at sunset. The dark part of the day comes first, sunrise, and then the light part of the day. That is important later on as we're studying. We're going to see how that fits together. Now, that happens to be all the texts there are in the Old Testament. There's not another one in all the Old Testament that mentions the first day of the week. So we're going to have to go to the New Testament. And we're going to start right in at the beginning of the New Testament with the Gospel of Matthew. And this is what it says. Matthew 28, verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, Matthew is saying, The Sabbath is over. As the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, came to see the tomb. So it says, Matthew is saying the Sabbath is over. It's past. It's on the first day of the week. The sun's coming up. Mary... These other women are all coming to see the tomb. Why? Well, they didn't have time. 
Friday afternoon when Jesus was put in the grave, they didn't have time to get his body ready for burial, so they're coming early. Now, folks, if there had been a change, if there had been a change in the day of worship, Matthew would have certainly said something about it. Do you know when the Gospel of Matthew was written? Huh? Well, the Gospel of Matthew was written in 60 A.D. This happens to be 29 years after the death of Jesus. If there had been a change here, Matthew would have said something about the first day of the week now being the day of worship and so forth, but he doesn't say a word. Now, that's all that Matthew says about it. Nothing else. So let's go to Mark. The Gospel of Mark says, and when the Sabbath was passed, Mark's saying the same thing that Matthew says, almost identical. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and what? Anoint him. You see, they weren't able to do that Friday afternoon. Sun was setting. They got there. They saw how his body was laid. They weren't able to do it. So now it's early Sunday morning as the sun's coming up and they're bringing these spices and all to prepare his body for burial. Let's continue. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now, they've come in very, very early. There's one more text here in Mark. I want you to look at it with me. Now, when he had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to who? Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Now, or demons. Now, let me just say that this thing with Mary Magdalene, it says he appeared to her first, as we'll see in just a few minutes, that he appeared to Mary Magdalene while it was still dark. Sun hadn't even come up. So he rose while it was still dark. Before the sun had even come up, Christ was, had already risen. So he appeared to her first. And there is nothing here in Mark that says God took the first day of the week and blessed it, hallowed it, and sanctified it. Why are these women coming to the tomb early at the rising of the sun? Why are they coming so early? Well, they're coming there for what purpose? To anoint his body. He's been dead since Friday. So they know that time is of essence here. They've got to take care of his body. They don't have much time. Secondly, they want to do it while it's still cool. They don't want to do it while it's hot. They want to take care of it while it's cool. This is not an easy job. This is hard work. Do you know how much spices and ointments that it took to embalm somebody's body? It took 300 pounds. So when they're bringing the ointments and spices, they're not carrying a little load, they're carrying 300 pounds. In fact, the Scripture says that Nicodemus furnished 100 pounds of it. That's what the Scripture says. That Nicodemus himself furnished 100 pounds of it. So this is not an easy job. They're not coming to the tomb to worship. They don't even believe he's risen. They're coming there to work, to embalm his body. Let's go on to the next one. The next gospel is that of Luke. Luke says almost identical, the same thing. 
Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. The Sabbath is over. Sun's coming up. They're coming to the tomb to prepare his body. Now Luke, by profession, was what? Doctor, physician. So when you read the Gospel of Luke, if you'll watch, you'll find that Luke writes in much greater detail than the other writers. He puts things down that you just don't get in the other writings. He's more exact in what he says. So what we're going to do is we're going to back up. We're going to back up about four or five verses into the 23rd chapter of Luke, and we're going to let him put the whole story together for us. Listen to what he says here. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now this man he identifies as Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy man. He uh, belonged to the Sanhedrin. Therefore, he had no trouble whatsoever seeing Pilate. He was one of the rulers, and so Pilate would see him without any trouble. So Joseph of Arimathea has gone to Pilate. He's asked for the body of Jesus. In fact, he has Jesus buried in his own tomb. It makes it very clear in the Scriptures that it was a tomb of a wealthy man. Listen to what it says. It says, And he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. Now, that may sound like a strange phrase to you where it says no one had ever lain before, but that's not strange in many other lands. In the United States, we don't do things like that. You know, we bury somebody and that's it. But in many other places, they even rent tombs. They rent it out. And if you don't pay your rent, they'll take the person out. So this was a new tomb. No one had ever lain there before. He had it made for himself, and he put the body of Jesus in it. And if you go over to Jerusalem today and go to the garden tomb, you can see all that. Very, very beautiful. And it says, and that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. So it says that Jesus died on the preparation day. That's the day before the Sabbath. We refer to that as Good Friday. It's what we call it, Good Friday. He dies about 3 o'clock Friday afternoon. Now listen as it continues. The women who came with him from Galilee followed after. They observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Uh, you see, it's not far from where he was crucified to where they buried him. In fact, it's very close. I had a little difficulty that when I, uh, before I went over to Israel and began to actually see how it was because I had sung songs all my life on a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross and all that. And I used to wonder how in the world they got him off the cross, got him clear back in there and buried him and all that. Well they might be 200 yards apart. That's how far it is. You know, it's not, not a long distance from where he was crucified to where they buried him. By the way, I don't want to shake you up very much, but nowhere in this book does it say he was crucified on a hill. It doesn't say that. The evidence is much stronger, folks, that they crucified him beside the road. They crucified him there as a exhibit to everybody else. You better not do what this fellow did. So not on a hill somewhere. If you're thinking about a skull, Golgotha, that's right beside the road. That's where it was. Okay, 
It says, they saw the tomb, how his body was laid, and then it says, they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. These women go home. It's late Friday afternoon. The sun's going to set in a little bit. And so they prepare the spices and ointments and then they rest the Sabbath day according to the commandment. And I have people ask me, is it important? You mean to tell me that when those women would not even anoint the body of the divine Son of God on the Sabbath, then I'm the one to say that it's not important? Not hardly. Not hardly. Says that they rested the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now we come to the first verse of the 24th chapter, and it says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. So the Sabbath's over. It's dawning. Sun's coming up on the first day of the week, and these women now are going to go and finish the job that they didn't have the opportunity to do. We refer to that day as Easter Sunday, the first day of the week. So it's no problem here. The Scripture makes it very, very clear but there is nothing in Scripture that says God blessed, hallowed, and sanctified that day. All right, let's go to John, the Gospel of John. Let's see what John says about it. The first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still what? Dark. Saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. You see, she's got there before anybody else. It's still dark. And you remember Jesus appeared to her. She didn't even recognize him because she was crying. It was dark. So he's appeared to her. Now, it's not saying anything here. It's not saying that God blessed, hallowed, sanctified that day. It's just not saying that. There's one other text here in John you need to listen to very, very carefully. Then the same day at evening, first day of the week, same day, all right? Being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So now this is the first day of the week. Jesus has now appeared to these disciples. They're gathered in this room. They're gathered there for what purpose? They're hiding. They're afraid. They're not there worshiping. They're not meeting on the first day of the week in honor of his resurrection because they don't even believe he has risen from the grave. They're there afraid that they're going to be crucified like he was crucified. That's what they're afraid of. So they're there hiding when Jesus appears to them on the first day of the week. Certainly nothing in this that says that God blessed, hallowed, and sanctified that day. Now that happens to be all the texts there are in the Gospels. There's not any more in the Gospels. There's two more in the New Testament. I'm going to tell you very carefully, you need to look at the next two texts extremely careful because 85% of all the reasons that are ever given for worshiping on the first day of the week will be based on these two texts. So you need to listen to it and make sure you understand it. The first one is found in the book of Acts. Acts, the 20th chapter, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until... All right, now it says they're meeting on what day? Come on. 
first day of the week. They're meeting on the first day of the week. Paul is preaching to these people, and he preaches until midnight. All right. Now it says, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, so this meeting is taking place at night. It's a nighttime meeting, first day of the week. Remember those facts because you're going to need them in just a moment. Something begins to happen. Listen to what happens. And in a window sat a certain young man named Deutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Evidently, this is a warm summer evening. This meeting is taking place up on the third story. This boy is sitting in the window. Paul is preaching a long time, and the boy gets sleepy and falls asleep and falls out the window, kills him. Now, there's two things to be learned from that text. One, don't go to sleep on the preacher. It's dangerous. Don't do that. Two, the preacher shouldn't be long-winded either. Okay? So those are the two things that we need to learn about that. But let's see what happens here. Paul went down, fell on him, embracing him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Paul went down, prayed for this young man. And as he prayed for them, God gave that young man his life back. Okay? All right. And it says, Now when he had come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till the break of day, or daybreak, he departed. Now, there's some people that have difference of opinion about breaking bread here. Some people think that when it says they broke bread, that just meant they got together and ate ate a meal together. Others believe that that means they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. I personally believe they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's what I believe they were doing. And I'll tell you in a minute why I think they were doing that. But it says that the boy was raised back to life. Of course, they're all overjoyed. They came up and broke bread, had eaten and talked a long while till daybreak. All right. They brought the young man in alive, they were not a little comforted. They were overjoyed about this. Now, let's see if we can put all this together so we understand what's happening. If you look at Paul's life, you'll begin to understand that he made three missionary journeys. Now, let's establish when this meeting is taking place. It says that it took place on what day of the week? First day of the week. It's happening at what time of day? It's happening at night. That's when he's preaching to them is at night. Now, we found out that the day begins when? At sunset. When the sun sets because it says the evening and the morning was the first day. So the dark part of the day comes first. So this is the beginning of the day. Paul preached until midnight. The boy fell out the window, and they talked until daybreak. So if this is the first part of the day, then it had to be... Saturday night. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Saturday night is the first day of the week because the first day of the week starts at sunset. If you move to Sunday night, that's the beginning of the second day. So this is a Saturday night meeting. They're meeting here together. This is happening in the city of Troas. That's where it's happening. Now, Paul, as I mentioned to you, made three missionary journeys in his life. They're on this map, if you can see, the red, the green, and the yellow. 
This is his third missionary journey. This is his last missionary journey that Paul ever makes. He's gone all along the coast of Asia Minor here. He's come on back down here and clear down into Athens. While he's there, he has a dream. And in this dream, Paul has purposed, when he's clear down here in Athens, he has purposed to go back to Jerusalem because he wants to be there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread so he can preach to his countrymen. So he's going to catch the ship, and he's headed back for Jerusalem. And in a dream, the Holy Spirit says, Paul, if you go back to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound and taken to Rome. That's what it tells him. You're going to be bound and taken to Rome. The Holy Spirit doesn't tell him not to go. just tells him that's what will happen. So he gets on the ship, and he's sailing back, and he gets clear up there to Philippi. He started the church at Philippi, and the elders of that church come out and met his ship, and it says that the Holy Spirit had impressed them also, and they plead with Paul not to go to Jerusalem, begging, don't go. But Paul feels he's got to go. It's even while he's on this trip that the prophet Agabus comes, takes off his sash and ties Paul's hands and his feet, and tells him, if you go on to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound and taken to Rome. So this word has spread all along there, and Paul now comes to Troas. This is where this incident happens. He's raised the church up at Troas. He is spending the Sabbath there. He's there a number of days. These people don't want him to leave. They want him to stay, but Paul knows he's got to go on. Now listen to what happens. And we went ahead to ship. Now, when it says we went ahead to ship, that's Paul's companions. That's Timothy, Luke, Silas. That's Paul's companions. They kept the ship, catch the ship. We went ahead to ship and sailed to Asos. There intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders himself intending to go on foot. Now, what's Paul doing? Paul's told his companions, you catch the ship here in Troas and you sail over to Asos, I'll spend the night with the believers here, and in the morning, I'll walk over to Asos and catch the ship there. Now, you say, is that possible? Well, let's look at the map. If you look at the map, you can see Troas. You can also see a peninsula sticking out there, and Asos is on the other side of the peninsula. It's 19 miles from Troas to Asos. It would take them a full day to sail around that peninsula. So Paul said, I'll just spend the night here, and in the morning, I'll walk over to Asos and catch you there. Why is he doing this? Because they're going to have a farewell meeting for Paul. They know they're never going to see him again. That's why. That's why they stay up all night long. Why didn't they go to bed? They didn't go to bed because it's the last time they knew they would ever see him. That's also why I think they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. Because I can't think of anything any nicer if I was meeting with a group of believers that I knew I would never see again. I can't think of anything any nicer than to celebrate the Lord's Supper with them. So they met, they talked all night long. Sunday morning, Paul walks 19 miles from Troas over to Asos, catches the ship there. There's nothing in this text at all about God blessing, hallowing, or sanctifying that day. One more scripture. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, 
As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you do also. There's a famine taking place over in Jerusalem. Not enough food. People there are suffering. So Paul has written out a letter to the churches at Corinth, to the churches at Galatia, asking them to give, to give some food for the poor in Jerusalem. And he gives them some instructions about how to give that. This is what he says. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now, what's Paul talking about? He's saying on the first day of the week, there to lay something aside. I have heard preachers say that text says that you're to take your offering to the church on the first day of the week. That isn't what that text says at all. In the original, it's clearer than here. In the original, it says you're to lay something aside at home is what it says. Now, what's he talking about when he comes on down in this text and says that there be no collections when I come? What's he meaning? Well, back in those days, people didn't have money. Very few people had coins. There were some gold coins around, but most of the people didn't have those. They did all their trading by a system called bartering. For instance, they went down to the market. They still do that over there to this day. And they took a bushel of wheat down to the market, and they traded that bushel of wheat for two bushels of barley. Or they took a chicken down, and they swapped the chicken off for something. This is what they used. They used a bartering system. They traded. So Paul said, the Sabbath is past. The first opportunity you have to see how God has blessed you is on the first day of the week. So he said, look it over. See how God's blessed you? And if you have a half a bushel of wheat you want to give to the poor down in Jerusalem, set that aside at home. Have all that waiting. He said, don't wait until I get there to collect it. There be no collections when I come. He said, have it set aside waiting so we can just pick it up and be on our way. That's what he's saying, folks. Absolutely nothing about this day being blessed, hallowed, or sanctified by God. Now, I don't know. A lot of folks say, but Brother Cox, isn't there? No, there's no scripture. In fact, to be honest with you, I don't have $5,000. But there is someone that offers $5,000 for a text. In fact, the Catholic Church offers such. This is what they say. Listen. Cardinal Gibbon of the Catholic Church made this statement. Cardinal Gibbons of the Catholic Church says, you may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The Scripture enforces the religious observance of Saturday, a day which we never sanctify. They offer they say there is absolutely no scriptural authority for that. You say, well, why do they do it? Well, I don't know if you can remember a period of time known as the Reformation. You've studied that in history. When the Reformation was over, through the preaching of men like Luther and Knox and Zwingli and Calvin and all those reformers, uh, it shook the church to the very foundation. In fact, it looked like that the Catholic Church was going to be destroyed they called what was known in history as the Council of Trent. This Council of Trent was a meeting of priests, bishops, 
archbishops, cardinals, and they were all meeting for the purpose of studying what they needed to do to put the church back on a solid foundation belief-wise. That's what the meeting was all about. That meeting lasted for 17 years. 17 years. There was a group of priests, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, that said that the only way the church was ever going to come back to a strong foundation is they were going to have to come back to the Scripture and build their belief on the Scripture and the Scripture alone, and they were going to have to stand on the Word of God and nothing else but the Word of God. That was, I mean, strongly proposed and reasoned and argued by those men. There was an equal group of priests, bishops, archbishops, cardinals that said no. They said if the church is going to stand on a strong foundation, if it's going to be what it should be, then it will have to stand on Scripture and tradition, both. That's what they argued, that's what they taught, that's what they believed. That was written about, went back and forth for 17 years. At the end of 17 years, the Archbishop of Origio presented a paper to the Council of Trent. In that paper, he presented an argument. And with that argument, he swayed the whole Council of Trent and got them to vote. I want to share with you one paragraph out of that paper. This is what he said. The Archbishop of Origio said, the authority of the church could therefore not be bound to the authority of Scripture because the church had changed the Sabbath into Sunday, not by the command of Christ, but by its own authority. He said, if you are going to come back and you're going to have to stand on Scripture and Scripture alone, then you're going to have to come back to the biblical Sabbath and you're going to have to stand on the Bible and the Bible and keep the Sabbath. But he said, if you are going to continue to keep the first day of the week, you will have to stand on Scripture and tradition. And the Council of Trent voted that Scripture and tradition are both equal streams of truth. That's what they voted. Change it. That's where it took place. That's what happened. Now, you may be saying, but Brother Cox... There's so few people that keep the Sabbath. Such a minority, there's just not very many of them that do it. No, there's not, to be perfectly honest with you. If you, if you don't count the Jewish people, if you separate the Jewish people out of it, and you talk about Christians, there's probably 10, 12 million in the world that keep the Sabbath. But I'd like to acquaint you with some of the people that are in this minority that have kept the Sabbath. Because it tells me clearly that Abraham of old kept the Sabbath. It tells me that Moses kept it, that David and Solomon both kept the Sabbath, that Elijah and Elijah kept it. It also tells me that John kept the Sabbath and that Paul kept the Sabbath, and standing head and shoulders above them all, it tells me that my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath. And I don't know about you, 
But as far as I'm concerned, I'll take my stand with that minority any day. Any day, friend. You see, God is simply asking. He's asking that you and I stand on faith. Faith means that I accept what this book says. It means that I'm going to believe what he says and I'm going to walk with him. God has asked people all the way down through time to stand by faith. He's still asking them to do it. And I want you to listen as Sylvia sings about walking with the Lord by faith. 